Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. So to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. we got lots of weightlifting and powerlifting certifications coming up, so check the schedule on that. This podcast can also be found on our website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a physiotherapist in Ontario, Canada. He is also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. Speaking of the website, we got the new one up there, don't we? Yes, the new website is live. Uh, you worked you, your tail off, well, you and Derek to put that together. Well, yeah, our developers worked their tails off. We we just you know, <laughs> you, you're part of the process. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're super excited about that. The, it, we're still working out some of the kinks on it, but it looks great, and I think it's it's going to be really awesome for people. So check out the new website. You've got news feeds and. You can connect with with people in the community, and um, there's we've got a ton of of videos and and articles up there sharing open access research. So yeah, check out the new website; it's really really cool. Thanks for bringing it that up, Jared. Pretty. Isn't it nice? It is. It's nice. <laughs> Uh, and we have John Flagg, who thinks our website is nice. That's why we have him on the show, to give us compliments. He is an athletic trainer and and the wellness director at Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy in White Plains, Maryland. He is the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong, which is also in White Plains, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, which is an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He's also a clinical athlete provider and the lead instructor of our newest course, the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. What's up, John? Nothing much. Excited for this talk. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. So we've got, we're, we're super excited to welcome Marco Soriano, who is a researcher and currently works in the Department of Physical Activity and Sports at the University of Murcia in Spain. And he does research in sports med, which is what we're going to dive into. Marco, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks to you. So you've got a lot of projects going on, and I know one of them I've been I've been following is is optimal load for maximal power production ac- across a variety of exercises. We might get into that, but you came out with a recent paper called weight. It was titled "Weightlifting Overhead Pressing Derivatives: A Review of the Literature," and this is going to be a, a performance conversation that I'm that I'm really excited about. Before we dig into that. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your background and what's led you to your current professional interests and research tracks? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I've been always been related to sports, especially I used to play soccer, which is the common sport here in Spain. Also, I play rugby, then I started lifting weights and I love it. So uh, I started playing with weightlifting, powerlifting, and I really liked weightlifting. So I continued doing it, and I started reading and reading and reading. And what I found is that whilst the pulling and catching derivatives, so hand power clean, power clean, clean, snatch, hand power snatch, were well studied in the literature, I didn't find enough information about the overhead pressing derivatives. So then I started to, to study deeply and I still didn't find enough information, so I decided that a review was needed in that topic. Then I contacted Paul Comfort if uh, he was agree with that. Uh, he agreed. Actually, more information was needed about this topic. And also Tim Sukumel, who helped me before in one of the meta-analyses that we published previously. And well. Uh, we tried to do it, and I think we got a good job. And now it can be read. So now it's you, the ones who who have to tell me what's your opinion about the paper. 
Well, I thought it was great. And you mentioned my next question to you was going to be, why did you do it? And I think you already answered that. There was definitely, there's definitely a gap. Cause like you said, there's a ton of literature on the, the clean, the hang clean, just the, the, the hang derivatives in general. And yeah, not a ton on the overhead, on the overhead lifts, uh, really at all. And what, what did you guys in general, if you could summarize your findings and then we can kind of dig into things, what did you find in regards to the overhead derivatives as it pertains to performance? Why are those relevant? Well, I would say in this matter, uh, I wouldn't say that these exercises are magic or they have some magical properties that you should use. I just say that these are important tools. And as a coach, if you are training to a general sporting population, not just weightlifters, if you are training to a, maybe a rugby players or don't know, like uh, volleyball players, uh, something like that, uh, they can be very important tools, right, to implement in your training, especially because you are targeting all the lower body tribal extension, the propulsion phase, like the power development, strength, and also uh, it requires a lot of motor learning, stability, coordination, because you have to transfer the force from the lower body to the upper body in one continuous motion for the push press. Then for the push gear and split gear, you have to catch underneath. So I think it requires a lot of coordination, which might be very interesting for a sport population. And yeah, that, I'm glad you actually named the lifts because I didn't do that. If we're, we're defining these overhead derivatives as specifically the push press and the jerk derivative. So we could lump, probably lump in, yeah. yeah, push jerk, power jerk, split jerk. It all has that dip and drive phase at, at least, right? There's some distinctions here between terms, and I'd like you, if you can, to delineate and define certain terms that people will see in the literature regarding force production and regarding power output. Can you make it a distinction between force, just peak force, and rate of force development? We'll start there. The differences between force and rate of force development. Well... If you allow me, I'm going to start defining first the impulse, which is force uh, by time. And also, if you want to increase your performance, all right, you can do either by increasing the force in a given amount of time or by increasing the time that you are applying force. Once you know that, right, uh, which is important is that in many sports, the the time that you have to apply force is constrained. Then it is not useful, right, to apply force for a more time because you don't have that time. What do you need? What you need actually is to apply more force in less time. That's why the rate of force development come to this point, right? Because this is the rate of force by the unit of time. So you should try to increase the amount of force for a given time. For example, 100 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds, depending on the sport and depending on the sporting task that you want to test. The peak force is the highest value that you find. But it doesn't mean that the peak force is more important than the rate of force development. I would say that the rate of force development for many sports is more important than the peak force. Maybe for a power lift, Doing a deadlift, maybe the peak force is more related to performance because you have to lift great, the, like greater amounts of load and you have more time. But if we are talking about the jumping or something like that, probably the rate of force development is more related to sport performance than the peak force. And that's interesting. And I've seen the the 250 milligram or milliseconds as kind of like in general, a lot of sporting actions, the, the force that you need to generate is in that 250 millisecond range. And if you're, by the time you get to a peak force output, whatever that sporting action is, is already done. You don't, you don't even really get there. So it's like, to your point, how fast can you generate? Now you want to generate as much force in that small time as possible, 
But you made a distinction there between the impulse. And it's not necessarily that a greater impulse, which is the time, it's it's kind of the area under the curve of the forced time curve, the impulse. Would you say it's not necessarily beneficial to have a a longer impulse or a greater impulse? And we're talking like well, a jerk or a, a push press maybe specifically here. What I've seen now, because now we are we are studying in a, it hopefully it's it will be published in in a few time. Now we are studying like the kinetics and kinematic differences, also the effect of load. And what we've seen is that there are two different kinds of lifters or at least the lifter that we are testing. The ones who applied, like, let's say, who applies more force in less time, and the ones who take, like, longer time to apply force. So they have difference in inputs. Maybe the, let's say, the, the split gear or the push gear is successful for both kind of lifters, but they have different strategy. It's like uh, for the counter moment jump, you can have a different strategy, even the fatigue might impact the strategy that you are going to use, and you can get the same performance. So when we talk about performance for the for a jump, it's the centimeters. When we talk about performance for a jerk, is that you complete or not the lift. So you can get the same performance, it means get the lift successfully, independently of your strategy. That's why we use impulse, right? Just to see the different strategy in the in the lifters. And it provides us with many valuable information. So your point is, it's not it's not necessarily that you want um, a shorter impulse and, and more force or a longer impulse and more force. You're using these metrics as simply information and you're using them to identify different types of lifters. So in the gym, you would, this would manifest an athlete who uses a longer impulse would maybe have a, a, a deeper dip in their jerk dip or perhaps a longer, uh, a longer pause, the amateur, um, amortization, amortization phase. phase. <laughs> yeah, I always mess that up. Always. Um, so maybe, maybe a deeper dip, longer amortization phase versus somebody who you would perceive as being elastic, quote unquote, a shorter, di- a shorter dip and kind of that, that boom pop and the, and the bars up same outcome. One is utilizing elastic properties, higher rate of force development, shorter impulse. The other one, longer impulse. And to your your point is one's not necessarily better than the other. We can use these things to just identify the lifter. Yeah, you define it uh, perfectly, right? Uh, at that point, especially what we have seen also, and you can find some information about that uh, because this is also specific depending on the like the structural anatomy. Let's say uh, taller athletes they are able to perform deeper dips, right? They are able to apply, or let's say, to have more longer time to apply force, and they get higher relative velocities in comparison to shorter athletes. This is because just the mechanical levers. So I think depending on many factors, the lifters, they can have different strategies and no one strategy is better than the other. It depends, at the end, it depends on you. And it's the weightlifting coach, the one who has to have the knowledge to differentiate that and to provide their athletes with with the best strategy that they can adopt. That's my point of view. Would you say that you would just experiment then? And you might have an athlete who you suspect would use a deeper dip or maybe a shorter dip, but is it is it really just comes down to playing around with different strategies and, and seeing what works best? Yeah. You could you could use both strategies. 
right, to see how the athlete feels in that point. But I could say that, for example, that question, in my opinion, uh, it's for a like a, an experienced weightlifting coach. I'm not that figure. What I'm doing is just research to provide this information to a weightlifting coach. And I think that information a weightlifting coach is going to be like a more appropriate person to, to, to reply that. But definitely I could do that approach. I think that one is good and you could have very good results doing so. Yeah. Um, we tend to just have our, we tend to have our lifters do pauses, different drills. We'll do, we'll have them pause in the dip. We'll have them do um, exercises like jerk balances or just things to kind of get them to figure out where that stopping point is at the bottom of the jerk. Cause you can kind of feel it, whether it's, whether you stop more shallow or whether you stop deeper, there's always yeah. that kind of like you, my, my thing is no matter where you are, no matter if you, if you're, if you dip more deeply or you dip more shallow, you should have a stopping point. Yeah. Do you, would you agree with that to take advantage of that stretch shortening cycle? Uh, in my point, that breaking point, as you defined before, it, it's also influenced by like the anatomic structure, as I said, depending how tall the athlete is and depending on many things like the elastic properties, the tendon properties, so many things. Like uh, I'm actually agree with you in my experience as a lifter, as an amateur lifter, better said, because I'm not as good as you are uh, and not as a weightlifting coach, but I would say so, and I definitely agree with that. John, what are your thoughts on the, um, the teaching, getting somebody in the push press or the, the jerk, like getting them comfortable with that, with that dip? So I've used uh, some slow tempo stuff, and we've, we've talked before about using a pause. Um, I think one of the big highlights, at least in this conversation, is to understand there's individual differences, and it's going to take a little bit of time for not just – the coach to figure out what's optimal for each athlete, but what that let the athlete also kind of feel out what's optimal to them. Um, so when it a with, with the jerk in my experience, creating some form of tempo and getting a lot of reps, um, and getting them to feel when they need to put the brakes on is, is one big one. Um, but then also letting them explore that a little bit and not being like, okay, well you gotta make that quicker. Or you got to you got to stop earlier. Um, is that I've never had success with that. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Yeah, for sure. The other th so depth of dip is one thing, Marco. What about the speed of the dip of a push press or a jerk? I see a lot of lifters in their minds. They think if I dip faster, that's automatically better. Just because faster is better, but sometimes I see that maybe throws them out of position for the actual drive. Is there a, did you guys see any differences or anything in, in regards to relevance of the speed of that eccentric dip? You know, that is something that uh, we want to provide you in the future because we are, so we use reflect marks on the bar and also on the lifter, on the, we place a mark on the sacrum where it's supposed to be the center of mass. In that way, we can study if the markers on the one side, on the sides of the bar, and also the marker of the lifter, they move in parallel and at the same time during the eccentric phase. What we want to know is that they move in parallel not only during the eccentric, but also they stop together and also like they take the concentric phase or the propulsion phase together. If there is no synchronization between these variables, maybe imagine that your body center of mass, it drops like suddenly, then the bars, the bar smashes you. So it, it could be a problem. Uh, I don't have the, the data yet, 
but uh, what I could say is that uh, as in the first pull of the snatch and the clean, the lifter must control that the bar is close to the body. And that's why we say that the first pull is slow. I would say that the eccentric part of the of the dip, uh, it has to be at least under control. I'm not gonna say slow, right? But it has to be controlled. So if you do it too fast, just because you think you are gonna improve your elastic properties, probably the bar will smash you, right? And you will get the opposite effect. So you can that manifest because I know what you're talking about. They rush the dip, and then what happens at the bottom of the dip? Instead of having this still like strong, stable platform that you can imagine, even if yeah. there's not 160 kilos on the bar, you can just kind of imagine the bar oscillating and wrapping around the body and then whipping back up. What happens instead is their upper body just kind of folds, their elbows yep. drop, and it, the, all that power just kind of dissipates downward, and they've got very little to spring back up because another thing that was mentioned in your paper is that there's actually an unweighting phase in the dip of the push press and the jerk, meaning the ground reaction force actually becomes less than the system weight for a a small period of time. So essentially you you're unloading and then all of a sudden that load, you're absorbing the entire system load all of a sudden. So to your point, you just keep that in mind. Faster may be better in a vacuum, but if it's to the point where it, that weight is overcoming your positioning, then maybe you should tempo the the dip down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I saw that. And there is an unwaking phase, and you can differentiate it like in a jump. So it's uh, incredible, actually. And as I told you, like it differs depending on the lifter and also depending on the height. So as I told you, like taller lifters, they are able to unweight even like more newtons than the shorter lifters. And uh, I don't know, like it's pretty cool to see the data and it's very valuable. And yeah, I could say that. So you have to control the face so the bar cannot smash you, right? But you cannot do it like if it were like a, I don't know, like a quarter of a squat so slow, no. So you are gonna perform like an Olympic lift, so you have to perform it quickly, but under control. So that's why I talk about optimal time duration, blah, 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 in the, in the paper, because it has to be optimal. How do you get optimal? That's why years and years and years of training are implemented. And that's why I think experimentation is important because optimal, yeah. optimal is individual. And, you know, we can say on average, but then when you, when you get down to the individual, there's a lot of variables. There's, there's how far down are you going to dip? How fast are you going to do it? Uh, these types of things. You mentioned jumps. The question that I get a lot, is what's the difference if I if I want to increase my my power or my jump height, would I not just do jumps, different variations of jumps? Some one argument could be made, well, some of the these lifting uh variations may provide you with a, a kind of that strength power stimulus to aid in your jumping. Can you talk a little bit about the comparison between a push jerk, a push press? the mechanics and the and the kinetics versus actual jumps counter movement jumps jump squats those types of things yeah uh, unfortunately we don't have enough information yet because many research is needed on that topic but uh, what i want to say is that for example for the push press push jerk and split jerk the three exercises they share the same propulsion phase, which is similar to the jumping propulsion, but is not equal. It means when you have a bar in the front rack position, you can just 
go down right with the trunk as strictly as possible because if you incline the trunk as you do in a pointer moment jump for example the bar will good drops it's natural no and especially if you have a hundred of kg or more than that no so there are differences and also like the dip that you can perform when you have like a, the bar on a front rack position it's gonna be always like a less deeper than the one that you can perform a counter moment jump so you can do a full counter moment jump if you want a full squat if you want a deep one but in the push air or in the push press you can't so you can go lower as you said before but you cannot go to a thruster position no as people they do in the thruster because it makes no sense so you are losing all the energy so what i could say is that i could work on these exercises if my point is to target the triple extension is to target like the propulsion phase overloading it right and especially i think these exercises are more secure or have more safety for the lifter because when you are jumping with the bar on your shoulders right what happens if you fail which uh, but if you fail go ahead sorry yeah no i mean when you are doing jump squats you can see some papers from cormy that uh, uh, they were training with 80% of the 1RM in a squat. 80% of the 1RM in a squat, if your squat is 200 kgs, 80% is going to be around 170. So have you ever tried to jump with 170 <laughs> kg on your shoulder? I could try. I'll give it don't a want, shot. Don't want to? Yeah. <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah. <laughs> However, you can you can do a, a push press or a split jerk with like the bar in the front rack position, right? With 90% of your maximum split jerk. And if you fail, right, the bar drops forward and nothing happens. So that's why I think these exercises are gonna be very interesting as as I, as I said before, as a training tools for the coach, you can use it or not. Maybe if you're athletes, they they don't know the technique, right? Maybe you're going to spend a lot of time teaching the technique. But if they can use them, why not? Would you say that... So so your point is the there's a benefit. Obviously, if you want to increase jump height, jump performance, these types of things, you're going to do some of that too. Um, stretch shortening cycle, you're going to do some plyometric stuff, but the push press is a way to, to overload those positions while, while still getting that it's that speed, it's that strength speed continuum. Yes. Yeah. So what about putting the bar on your back and doing push press and push jerk? Because now you can still, now you can actually incline your torso a little bit more forward if you want to. And you don't have to worry about the, some people are limited by the front rack position in general. It's a little awkward. You got to move your face out of the way. If you just put the bar on your back and do a push press or a push jerk, now you don't have to worry about that. And you can drive as hard as you want. What are your thoughts on that behind the neck overhead work? Yeah, definitely overhead pressing derivatives. Uh, they are implemented before from the from the back, so behind the neck, because it's easier to to, to learn this technique than the than the front rack technique. But I would say for general sporting population, as you know, when, when you are placing the bar behind the neck, and you have to do like a or you have to lift the load to an overhead position. It's uh, especially for mobility, right? You can find some problems for for the athletes, right? And I talked about that with uh, Paul Comfort, and he told me that that maybe in many sports like rugby union or uh, rugby league, 
you will not find many athletes with the, with enough mobility to perform this exercise from the back. Although performing these exercises from the back is easier because the bar is in the center of pressure and as you said, it's technically it's easier to, to learn this exercise before. And I think, of course, uh, there's going to be some technical peculiarities which might benefit like the triple extension as in the jumps. Yes. So just considerations on, on who you're working with. I mean, that, that makes total sense to me. Um, optimal load as far as, yeah. yeah. And I know that's a lot of, of, of what you guys are doing right now with your projects. Let's take, um, just non weightlifters for a second and just field sport athletes, individual athletes, team sport athletes who are using the overhead derivatives to produce physical qualities that they can then later use in their sport. Is there, is there an optimal intensity range in which you are still working on rate of force and force development, but you're also keeping velocity high so that you can also work on power development? Whereas if it's too heavy, maybe you get some diminishing returns in regards to power output. And if it's too light, you get some diminishing returns in regards to force output. Is that accurate to say? And is there an optimal range? Yeah, uh, that's what I would say. Uh, when people ask me that, um, I never say that you have always uh, to train at the optimal load because that's not true. It depends on the planification. It depends on the uh, status of training. It depends on the coach. It depends on many things. What I could say that what does make sense for example, could you use like uh, power cleans, split jerks, uh, hand power snatch with the bar for training power development just with the bar? You can use those exercises with the bar if you want to improve the technique, if you want to, I don't know, to improve yeah, the, the technical aspects of the lift. But if you want to target the power development, weightlifting exercises are Mm, fantastic exercises to target the speed abilities whilst you are overloading the exercise. It means you can use heavy loads and still getting very good velocities, very high velocities. So that's why I think it makes sense. If I get a squat or if I get a bench press, more traditional exercises, maybe I should target more the maximal strength capability because I can get more weight on the exercises and maybe I don't need to target a lot on the speed. Just, yes, try to lift it as much as possible. So as, uh, as fast as possible, as you are an athlete, as you are a lifter. And for me, it makes sense. And also with jumps, it wouldn't make sense to jump with 180 kg on your shoulders. You can use weightlifting exercise, which are safer and probably will be better. And I could do jumps and these ballistic exercises just to target like in plyometrics, the strength shortening cycle and these things. You mentioned bench press there and you guys actually mentioned bench press in the paper and comparing sports performance applicability. So push press, push jerk, versus training the bench press. And I know it depends on the athlete and we're not talking powerlifters here because obviously you have to bench press. But in yep. regards to just sports sports performance in general, do you see the overhead derivatives being more useful than a, a strength-based lift like the bench press? In my opinion, they are definitely more useful. So I don't have uh, nothing uh, against... The power lifters, I love power lifting, I love benching, but I don't understand why so many articles about the bench press, using the, best, the bench press as a benchmark to measure the strength capability of an athlete, when the bench press is rarely seen in a sport performance. So, for example, the push press, right, you have to transfer 
like the force from your lower from your lower body to your upper body in one continuous motion. So more coordination. Uh, the motor learning is like also more difficult. So I, I find more similarities with the push press, uh, push air, split air, and I don't know, like snatch, whatever exercise, but not the, the bench press. I don't understand why so many articles on the bench press. I think it's a good exercise to be studied because like many people, they control this uh, this exercise. They they know how to perform it. And in, well, in my experience, it's very difficult to find people that they control the three techniques, the push press, push air and split air. And I don't want to say about, for example, imagine if I want to study the squat gear, it could be probably impossible, right? So, yep. We have uh, in the American football combine where the college, our university athletes go and they have all the uh, National Football League scouts watching them. The bench press is one of the big tests and it's used, yeah. it's used for all of the positions. So I can see the... Now it's a, we're talking testing versus training, but you, if you're going to the combine, you're training for the tests essentially. And the bench presses, I can see the utility there for linemen for sure, because they're pushing, they're literally doing bench presses, you know, every single play as they're pushing on, but they also test it, you know, for the defensive backs and the running backs, these little guys and the receivers. But I also, you know, I think that maybe that it's easier to perform. There's less time there's less learning time that maybe is uh required and also i would say on average maybe the positions are easier to get into for most so there's a lower barrier to entry which is maybe why we just gravitate towards that as like a proxy for upper body strength but i'm just kind of thinking like you know a push press test in the in the combine would be interesting it would be harder to I was going to say it would be harder to judge, but those bench press tests in the combine get kind of sketchy too. John, they're pretty you, wild. Yeah. Uh, that, that's the most lit session in the entire NFL combine. People are screaming, they blast the music, but you know, they're bouncing it off their chest. But no lockout. Um, like what, that, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's pretty bad, but I, I think when it comes to, because I've, I've thought about this a lot when it comes to the the combine and testing and and you talked about impulse and one of the things about the overhead variations within weightlifting is is something people have alluded to quite a bit recently, which is not just creating force but also absorbing and redirecting force. And the dip and drive aspect of the push press and the power jerk. Yes, linemen are doing a bench press. They also have a 285-pound man hurtling at them that is about to hit them. So they have to take force and then redistribute it out where that dip phase and then like you're talking about, Marco, the propulsion phase, it would seem that would actually be more applicable. Um, The question I have, though, is the same thing. The bench press is very simple. Is it a learning curve problem? And is there a, a tier of technical requirements for some of this stuff? Because I'm just thinking from even from a youth training aspect, like we talk about the learning curve for a push press. And I would still probably say that's that's going to be easier to learn than a clean from the floor. Right now, which has more benefits, I don't know because we still need more data, but a bench press is just really easy for people to learn. It might not be applicable, but it's very easy to learn. Yeah, but here uh, my point would be, for example, if we compare a bodybuilder versus any kind of this sport that you mentioned it before, maybe a good bodybuilder, a strong one, a heavyweight one, maybe he could bench like uh, more kg than any of these athletes so and we could have this measure imagine if we test all of them and we could say this guy is very strong but i'm sure for that if we compare this same bodybuilder 
And if we like apply a push press test instead of instead of a bench press test, we could differentiate more the sporting population than the bodybuilder. We could do that because I'm sure for that they are gonna be able at least just with maybe one day of a of a learning session, they are gonna be able to apply this force from the lower body to the upper body because they have more coordination of that, and it's a different way of training. And you know, it's just something like hypothetically, because uh, we don't have enough information about that. This is just like yeah. my opinion, you know. And yeah, definitely, I would try to use a test. At, for example, when you explain uh, something we watch very interesting about the line back, like trying to block the, or yeah, how is it that called? Tackle or is when you yeah. block like the opponent? No? Yeah, so in like a rugby term, right? Um, you're, you're coming across for the ruck and, yeah. and you, you're, draping over the ball and you have to stop them from coming over you. It's kind of the same thing in American football. They're going to backpedal. Somebody's coming at them and they have to stop that force and push that person in a particular direction. Um, so they have to be able to take, take that, that force from somebody coming at them. And even absorb for that, I'm sorry. Even for that, when you are like pushing them, you still have to keep yourself in the straight position. Yeah. It means that your lower body through your trunk, they are stabilizing your position and then you push. But if you are doing a bench press, we are just measuring your ability to push under stable conditions, not under unstable conditions. Mm -hmm. And in this way, you are absorbing an impact from a guy that is coming to you, right, to, like, make a collision against you, and then you have to stabilize your whole body, right, and then transmitting the force from the lower body to your upper body, and then pushing him. So I think that's why push-press or any kind of these exercises are more applicable to sports than the bench press. I'm not saying that we should uh, delete the bench press from the general sports preparation or even from the, the test, but I would say that's my opinion. And I think many trainers or many coaches, they are like get being aware of the benefits of this exercise and they are going to implement them like in a few time for sure. In order for the bench or the push press and the jerk to be an overloading exercise, you need sufficient load. Obviously it does. And so now we're talking about time cost, the benefit benefit ratio in regards to the time that you spend teaching them. And then the time it takes to, for them to work up to a load that's actually sufficient to give them a stimulus so you're balancing the time that it takes to get to that load with the execution of the lift. So my, my question to you, Marco, is how much does technique and just the, the eye test, like the form of the movement, the execution of the movement matter in regards to a push press or a push jerk? If it, if it looks a little sloppy, but they're still getting the dip and the, and the power output, can we live with that? I guess is, is my point. Yeah, that's a tricky question, actually. <laughs> well, uh, especially under heavy loading conditions and for the um, for the split jet, I would say, like the heaviest one, it's going to be very important, the technical efficiency. But, well, look, for this, uh, we have just done a study um uh, on the 1RM performance, not kinetics and kinematics, 1RM performance, on the push press, push gear, split gear, across cross feeders and uh, weightlifters. Mm. What we found, both population, they are like 
they've got used to train with this kind of exercise, so they've got a, a weightlifting experience, but the weightlifters, they differentiate especially at the split year because it's the most technical exercise. However, the crossfitters, they don't differentiate between the push year and split year. It means they lift similar loads using the push year or the split jerks. I think it is because uh, when they do, for example, grace or any of these workouts, very clean and jerk, they don't do a split jerk. So they do a push jerk. And that's why for, I would say, training specialization in these ways, it differentiates a lot between sports. Uh, in my opinion, for targeting like the lower body triple extension, if my goal is to increase the power production for my athletes, the push press, uh, push air, split air, just targeting like the deep, as you said, like a good propulsion phase. If you don't have like a perfect technique or maybe you take the bar overhead like with the elbows a little bit flex or something like that, it could be enough. So we are not uh, weightlifting judges. So I could say so, but especially for weightlifters, you can see like the differences. But these differences are based on many, many, many years of training and many repetitions. And you can't get that with general sporting population. And it's not your target. They don't have to lift as a weightlifter because they are not. I asked the question mostly because it's the most common one that I receive regarding using the weightlifting movements in any capacity, clean snatches, jerks, for sports performance. It's the time that it takes to coach it. It's the that cost-benefit. And... If you're a university, I like, and I get that, I, I don't, I totally get that. And you can get similar power and force by just doing pulls. Um, as far as lower body production goes, just doing the pull instead of doing the full clean or the full snatch. But it also it doesn't take that long if you're still training other things. It's not as if it's picking these variations or nothing. And now you're going to spend like all that time while you're training to get good at the push press or good enough at it, that you're not going to be training anything else. You're still can still do traditional things. If you've got an athlete for four years at a university, there's plenty of time. You start them their freshman year, learning the positions under very light loads, attaining a technique that's proficient enough to, to be able to sustain higher loads as they get better at it. But you've got all that time in the world. And I would still say, if you've got a summer with an athlete, that's probably still plenty of time, even if I have zero experience with this stuff, to get them doing the movements with a load that's sufficient enough to create some type of stimulus while you're still getting them strong. That's my thought on it. It doesn't mean that you have to have them in there. It just means that the time thing, unless you're literally only seeing this athlete for a week, yeah, sure. You don't need to, there's not enough time. It, it, it wouldn't matter. But generally, our time periods, I think, are adequate enough. What do you think about that, John? Uh, I think there's too. two. I think there's two aspects to that. I think the first one is I think you have enough time as long as you don't allow the weight room ego to jump too much. Um, you see, you you mentioned getting stabilized technique um, <clears throat> to manage that and manage the loads and make sure the lifts are still successful um, with that overload. And then also not having – I think a lot of coaches when they when they look at any movement really, and we can go into powerlifting with this as well or any type of exercise, they look for this perfect thing. And if it's not perfect, then they don't, they don't allow it to be trained either. So there's a fine line of like what can I get stimulus with and what they can continue to learn and sustain, right? And then what's, what's, too, what's too much, right? Because we have this guise of perfection. So I think I think there is plenty of time. You just have to be diligent with it and, and allow them to practice and allow them to explore a little bit. And if you've got four years in a university setting, that's, that's not, a lot of time. Yeah, that's not even. That's yeah, it's a lot of time. 
I mean, yeah, I, I've taken kids over a summer and gotten them proficient enough that the next summer they come back and they've done it enough and they look really good. Yeah. yeah I see my, your point. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No, I no, no. Just, I was just going to say that my, my thoughts echo what you said, John. I think that there's there's plenty of time in that um, if we have an understanding that we don't need things to be perfect uh, according to these preconceived standards that, that most coaches are going to have in their heads, then it can be a very viable and useful strategy, you know, to improve the performance that we're that we actually care about. And we talked even just in the beginning, there's going to be some variability in execution. We yeah. talked about the longer force development and the shorter first, like you got to allow that stuff to come to, to the forefront. Marco, what are you going to say, buddy? Yeah, I see your point And I go that, that, as you said, there are some exercises and so come uh, saw that, that for example, the jump stroke and the hang high pull and this kind of exercises, you can learn the technique just in a couple of hours. You don't need more than that. So you can start targeting these exercises knowing that your objective is to improve maybe the power production. Then you can work on some more technical aspects, right, to progress, right, to target or to overload maybe a more difficult technique. So if you, if you know how to do it, you can always uh, program you can always program it and i would say and i would like to add uh, because i did a conference about this in in spain like uh, one week ago or two weeks ago and i said that the main problem for example in my country is that if the coaches themselves we don't know how to perform these exercises mm. so many times and can tell you that these exercises are not teach because we don't know how to do them. And if we don't know how to do them, how can we transfer that knowledge to our athletes? So in my opinion, there is something that it's really important that apart that you know the theory, you have to train them and you have to train how is the process of learning and not developing the same process that you do with yourself to your athletes, but you have to know what does it feel, how, how you fail a, a power clean. And you need to know how is the feeling when you fail a, a power jerk. And you need to know how is the feeling when you fail a jump squat with 150 kg on your shoulders. Better you than your athlete, because that's your work. I think that's our work. My thought, as as John and Jared were talking too, and then you basically just reiterated it, is I think we're just scared to go overhead. In general, there's a little bit of a stigma there, where it's we don't well, we just don't want to go there. Got to be careful with overhead training. Got to be careful with overhead training. You see it with um, baseball players a lot. At least here, I see it, where these high school coaches and um, and college coaches, some of them are saying in the summer that you're that don't train overhead. These kids will come into our gym. And they'll train with us in the summer and the, you know, they'll tell us that their coaches don't want them going overhead. And um, I, you know, again, it's about dosage and, and these types of things. But I would say that would it not create some, you know, risk reduction if your shoulders are just strong in multiple planes? I would say, especially for a throwing athlete, those velocities are are crazy high and the arm is it's not straight overhead, but it's, it's out there and it's up there a little bit, you know? And, and, um, so I don't, I don't get the inherent fear and maybe it is coming from exactly what you just said, Marco, which is we don't, the coaches don't understand the movement themselves. And so they don't prescribe it, which I guess is fair, uh, to some degree, but maybe we just need to start getting back to training ourselves. Do you see? Well, and there's a, yeah. Go ahead, sorry, John. there's another aspect of neuromuscular control that you know we're talking about force development and, and that sort of thing. But a long-term benefit of high-complexity movement is just greater degrees of freedom in other high-complexity movements. Um, if you start teaching a kid as a freshman how to do 
cleans and, and like you said, hang cleans that you can do, hang power clean you can teach in an afternoon and you can develop that over a length of time to create a really high complex exercise that will have neuromuscular control benefits later on down the road. Um, and it might not be completely applicable, applicable across all field settings, but it at least can help with those degrees of freedom. Mouth-based. It gives them options, right? Well, yeah, it, it gives you more options. I agree. If you're using the gym for specificity, then you're missing the boat. I don't care what you're doing because the, the weight room is not specific Bingo. to your sport. It's it's what you said, John. Marco, question I had for you is the differences between execution of these overhead derivatives between novices and intermediate to more expert lifters in regards to execution. Do you see differences in technique versus those two groups? So we are not talking about the forces and just execution, no? Well, let's, yeah, let's say execution because I would... I would venture to guess that forces and novices are just weaker, but maybe we'll go all of it. Any any difference? Kinetics, kinematics, across the board. Yeah. Let's say for a relatively same load, if we talk about, for example, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90% of the 1M for both groups, what we know is that the, the experienced lifters they are stronger, so they are able to apply more forces, and also they are faster. So that's the truth. So they are better. And uh, what we see is that it's because, like, the movement, they are more economically, so they do the dip, like, as vertically as possible. Mm, we could say 99% of efficiency, uh, and so... You, you can see the differences pretty well. Now we'll have to study those with the kinetics and kinematics approach. But uh, yeah, definitely there are differences, especially because of that, and especially because of the forces. They are able to apply more force. If you are able to apply more force, right, you will be faster in the movement also. And especially for the, for the split jerk, what we've seen uh, is that this experienced lifters, they are able to drop lower, right, than the non-experienced lifters. So they don't need to, like, uh, elevate the bar as much as the other group needs. And for them, yeah, they can lift more load, especially in the 100%, so the maximum load that they have to lift. And... Uh, don't remember more differences. I would have to check it out, but those I think are, those are the most important. Yeah, those are the ones that I had. I took from the paper. Is the there's an interplay between technique and power production? I think if we a novice is weaker, just in general, they haven't trained that quality. But their their diff their movements different too. Their dip is not as vertical, and those and yeah. commonly you can see that too. With they're kind of just doing some weird things. Maybe they're making it like a like a back squat torso angle, even though the bar's in their front rack and their their force transfer is, is more yeah. horizontal than it is vertical. And so then that can increase their force output right there is just leveraging them differently. You know, I also think it speaks to variation. But so you mentioned experts, uh, can they drop lower? And my thought would be if the bar is heavier... Velocity is going to slow down and bar displacement is going to decrease because it's simply heavier. And so how do you make up for that? Well, you've got to now displace your body to make up for the lack of displacement of the bar. And speed is a component there and timing and all these things. And that's where I think variations come into play as useful. And now, now I'm getting into weightlifters specifically, I think probably more so than than uh, sport athletes, but working, you know, working it backwards, doing things in the split when you're, you're already in the split, like even just presses in the split or uh, jerk recoveries out of the rack where you're, the bar is in the rack and you're already in your split so you can feel exactly where you want to be. And then drills that work from the top end 
there's one called a tall jerk where you're mimicking the top of the drive of the jerk. So you're kind of on the balls of your feet and then you very, very quickly snap into your split. So you're just working on the timing there. And, and so you can take these to me, you can take these differences that you guys found in your paper, Marco, and say, okay, these are all the different qualities that maybe we can train with practice while we're obviously still doing the movement itself. Um, but it, to me, it just speaks to the importance of, of varied practice. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course, it makes sense. And, uh, well, I think it's very important just to take all of these drills. But, for example, in our paper, uh, we wanted to do, like, a review of the weightlifting, pressing derivatives, but especially to try to apply to general sporting population uh, for those for weightlifters itself, maybe like there are more specific drills that we are not going to apply on general sporting population, you know, because they are not interesting for us. And we are more interested just on the power, um, on the power development and the strength uh, levels of these lifts just apply to a general sporting population. But to me, as I'm a weightlifter follower, would say, of course, I try to study them and I really like them. Uh, another difference that came up to my mind, uh, I didn't remember, is that experienced lifters for the three lifts, they are able to apply, let's say they are able to apply the same forces independently on the, on the load. It means, for example, novice lifters, they need the load to perform a good lift. Uh, if they have maybe a 70% or 60%, they are not able to do the full triple extension. Uh, that's a common mistake for the second pull in the snatch and the clean, for sure. And we have um, kind of similar pattern for the pressing derivatives. And in this case, like the experienced lifters, they are able even under sub-maximal loadings to apply the same, like optimal forces, we could say, optimal speeds. And yeah, this is another difference that we could add. That makes sense to me. If you've ever watched some of these channels, like All All Things Gym is a, is a website that will video warm, like weightlifters in their warm-up routines. And you can, yeah, I know. Yeah. And you can see them. Let's say they snatch empty bar all the way up to 180 kilos or whatever. The tempo of the lift looks the same no matter the weight on the bar. They lift those light loads. And it's like you said, they can modulate their force output because those guys could obviously throw the empty barbell through the, you know, 50 feet through the ceiling. But they're, the movement is the same. The tempo is the same. The tempo is the same. And when they get the heavy loads, their body just self organizes for the amount of force and power that they need. It sounds like that's kind of what you're saying here, where more experienced lifters can self-organize their power output, no matter the load on the bar. Yeah. And maybe that transfers to sport in regards to being able to self-organize and modulate your power and force output, depending on the task that you're confronted with. Yeah. Energy conservation. I'm making stuff up now, but you know, um, it makes some, it makes some sense, but you'd like think about any novice thing. You're trying really hard and you can't really like dial back. There, there's no, there's no rudder there or mm. throttle is the word I'm, I'm looking for. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I think Marco, this has been a great conversation. Where can people connect with you or where can they, um, where can they find you or learn more about your work, catch up on your prior works? Yeah, okay. So they can contact me by my research gay profile. So it's Marco Soriano, as uh, I sign as an author for uh, my papers. And also, well, uh, I could add like my WhatsApp 
or uh, well, better than my WhatsApp, my Instagram or my Twitter. I didn't have Twitter, but I had to do one because we have a Congress now in Salford and I had to do one so I can pass you like my my Twitter and my Instagram right to you and then you, you can spread it if anyone wants to contact me for any that or whatever. So it would be a pressure to to give an answer or to do my best to give an answer. That'd be great. I'll put that stuff in the show notes. I'll link your your social media channels and your uh, research gate link as well. Okay, and, thank you. Yeah, and for people, just as, as an FYI, the paper that we're referencing here is open access. Um, yes. Yeah, so you can go and download that right now and, and have a read on it. And I think it's really, really, it's a nice read because it's applicable. And I think whether you're a coach or a trainer or uh, a clinician, it's a, it, it's not a whole lot of jargon. It's right down to the nitty to the nitty gritty, and and it's uh, really really great. So, thank you. Yeah. So thank you for doing that for all of us because we need you uh, putting, putting work you. out like that. And thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. John and Jared, thanks for joining us as always. Of course, that was great. Absolutely. Jared, yeah. Jared, are you going to start doing more jerks? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd actually really so, like to uh, get you up to Canada to show me how to do it properly. Yeah, there you go. So, Mark, so the internet was made for. That's right. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much, guys, and we'll talk soon.